Well, like I said, I'm glad to see you all here this morning. Uh, let me give you a quickly a little, um, a little update on what we are planning for the summer here at Hope. Uh, so next week, Matt is going to begin a four-week study of the book of Ruth. Uh, so that'll take us through June. And then we're going to take uh, July. We'll be hearing from uh, some of the other men in our church, as we often do, some of the other elders. Uh, we'll be doing that in July. And then I'm actually planning a short topical series in August. I'll tell you more about that eventually. And then we will begin a new book of the Bible after Labor Day. So I'll be taking a, a little break from preaching weekly this summer. It allows me time to prepare, to think about things. Uh, we're going to do some traveling. I'm going back to Israel, Lord willing, with Jeremy and the Equinox Orchestra guys in July. So I'm looking forward to the summer. Uh, I hope you guys are. We'll have BBS, we'll have youth camp, we'll have other opportunities to serve together as well. So I actually finished John a week early. Uh, I know that seems weird, uh, but just because of the way it ended up falling out, I finished a week early, so I needed to fill the calendar. I was, I was due to preach this morning, and I, I needed to find something to preach, so um, I, I thought it would be good to preach a psalm, and uh, as I've told you, and, and I would commend this practice to you, I read one psalm every morning. I keep up with that psalm in a little book that I keep next to my Bible. I, that's, that's the beginning of my time in the Lord, is I uh, I, I read through the psalm, I pray through it as well as I can, and it's been fairly beneficial uh, to me. It, it is the prayer book of God's people, that is the psalms, uh, so as we read through the psalms, we are reading through sort of historically what the people of God have, have read through and prayed, and I would also submit to you that the, the psalms, consistent time in the psalms, shape our understanding of God, because the Psalms speak of his greatness and his power and his loving kindness and his goodness, and we learn many things about his attributes through the Psalms. So on Monday, I arrived at Psalm 32, uh, which happens to be uh, a Psalm I look forward to. So I, I thought, okay, well, this is going to be our passage for Sunday. I, I actually believe that Psalms are most intended to be sung and read and prayed. I'm not saying that they're not supposed to be preached, but that the primarily they're to be sung and read and prayed together. So, so when I do have an opportunity to, to preach a psalm, uh, my purpose is so that we can read and pray and sing it with better understanding. And so, as always, I hope that maybe you'll make some notes in your, in your Bible from some of the things that I say. I, I like to say, you probably hear me say this sometimes, I hope you will add this to your tool chest, your spiritual tool chest. And what I mean by that is, I hope this will become a psalm that you are familiar with and that you too go back to uh, at, at various times during the year as you read through the Bible. Let me mention just a quick word of introduction about the psalm and then we will dig into it. It is the first of six penitential songs, psalms, six penitential psalms. Probably the most famous penitential psalm is Psalm 51, uh, where David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, this psalm itself claims to have been written by David, and I have no reason to doubt it, and it is likely occasioned by David's sin with Bathsheba and the consequent murder of her husband Uriah. And after that, 
If you remember, and we'll, we'll read this in a few minutes, David chose to spend a period of time, perhaps months, in dark impenitence. And David mercifully was brought to repentance through the ministry of the prophet Nathan. Psalm 32 describes the misery of a saint who has sinned. And it has serious physical and mental consequences as the unconfessed and and unforgiven sin festers in his soul. And if you doubted that Psalms are relevant, then I hope that it will be clear to you that you are wrong after you hear this one explained. So it has five sections. Each one could be a separate sermon, but we're going to move quickly through them this morning. The benediction, the confession, the application, the instruction, and the exhortation. So we will begin with the benediction in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we've talked about this before, that blessing seems like a stuffy word, blessed. I don't even know why we say blessed, blessed, right? Blessed. It sounds, but it sounds like something that someone who would say who is, you know, they've got their hands folded and they're their head bowed, and they're, they're pious, and it, it, just, it just has that sort of feeling of like, I am, I am, you know, that's the way it sounds to us, and we talked about this several years ago when we began 2 Corinthians, and we talked about the fact that the word actually means happy, and if you can find that on the podcast, you can go and listen to that. I make my case a long time ago. I won't spend time with that this morning, but Paul, at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, he, he speaks of... Um, he says, blessed is the, fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's actually saying, if you remember, is happy. Happy is the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the happiest person in the universe. That, that may sound strange to you, but he is blessed. He is happy. The Psalms begin with this description of a blessed person. Psalm 1.1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So Psalm 1 teaches us that a person who avoids sin is a happy person. His delight is in the law of the Lord. We think that sin will make us happy, right? That's why we sin. We think that it's going to make us happy, but that is a lie. It doesn't make us happy. We, we learned from Saul's life in, in 1 Samuel, if you remember, sin doesn't make you happy. Sin makes you stupid. And as hard as it is to believe, a person who avoids sin and meditates on God's word day and night is happy. But we all sin. So what then? Well, Psalm 32 tells us happy is the person who has sinned and been forgiven. Don't sin, and you will be happy, but there's hope. Confess your sin, and you will find happiness and be restored. People, uh, preachers often say, and I'll, I'll, I'll confess, uh, I, I used to say this too, God doesn't care about your happiness. He only wants you to be holy, and I, I've repented of that. I, I don't think that's right, because as we've already seen this morning, if you'll notice God seems very concerned with our happiness. Happy, if you want to be happy, be a person who walks like this and meditates in in God's Word. And then if you fail, you can still be happy if you are forgiven for your sins. So that's, that's a pretty enticing offer there. 
So verses 1 and 2 contain uh, three different words for sins. And, and I, I actually think that, that uh, Psalm 32, if, if you're ever thinking about sin in general, Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 is a, a good place to be. He says, he says, first of all, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So a transgression is, is, is a word that, that means forgiven. You're, the burden of sin is removed. Sorry. It's, it's an intentional sin. I was looking at the wrong spot. It was an intentional sin. It's a willful sin. A transgression is holding up your fist and, and, and denying that you are going to do what God wants you to do. That, that is a transgression. It's, it's deliberately running the stop sign, right? It, it's, it's choosing. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to sort of have your, to, to lose control of your passions and, and to respond in a certain way that is sinful. It's another to like make up your mind and say, I have decided I am going to sin. That, that is a transgression. Sin, on the other hand, refers to missing the mark. So, so sin has the idea that you, you've, you've chosen the wrong target. So our minds are all affected in such a way that we deliberately aim at the wrong things. That's, that's how sin has, has affected us. And then iniquity. Iniquity refers to sin that is planned out. Iniquity is sort of what we live in. We live in iniquity. The iniquity of our hearts lead us to aim at the wrong things and to deliberately defy God. So it's this sort of threefold picture of sin, something that David knew something about, and then man's threefold rebellion is met by God's threefold mercy. All right, so his transgression is forgiven. Here it is. The burden of sin is removed. His sin is covered. God provides a covering for our sin, hides it from heaven's view, and his iniquity is not counted against us. He does not charge our account for our iniquity. Okay, so this is, you know, we'll end the sort of hamartiology, which is the study of sin section of our sermon this morning, but we can say this, God has responded to our sin by lifting the burden, covering us from God's wrath, and canceling our debt. Now, the man who knows this is a happy, and here's the good news. This is good news, ready? It is possible to not just be truly forgiven, but to know it, and to have joy as a result. So we are New Testament believers. We are on this side of the cross. We can still hear the Savior say, as he says to the paralytic in Matthew 9, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that's a joyful thought. That's a really joyful thought. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But David had, had experienced a time when he had not enjoyed God's forgiveness. So this is the, the confession in verses 3 through 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So for many months, David had lived in distress because he had broken God's commandments. These were not sins of ignorance. He had committed high-handed rebellion against, against God. He sought to stifle his conscience. And then to make matters worse, he had been a man who had enjoyed God's presence. So he was living with a guilty conscience, having spent his life, much of his life, enjoying a real relationship 
with God. And listen to the description of his condition. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He was physically affected. He was so distressed that he groaned. He was becoming like an aged man. All day long, through my groaning, all day long, it was continuous. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. There's no relief. And then my, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. My soul was thirsty. I could find no refreshing. And his condition remained while he remained silent. His sin remained as long as it remained unconfessed. And I, I know this is very out of fashion to suggest today, but unconfessed sin is a very real source of physical and emotional suffering. And I do believe that in, in today's, uh, in people today, people don't know what's making them so miserable, but the one thing they do know is that they aren't causing it. I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I'm still in distress. And so what I know is the problem can't be me. But, but listening to David's description of his experience, doesn't, doesn't what he describe ring true with much of what we see around us today? Much of the heartache that we see around us today, you could, you could say there are many people who we know, even professing Christians, who would say, I'm groaning all day long, my bones are wasting away, your hand is heavy upon me, my strength is dried up. And like David, we're talking about believers who have known the joy of the Lord. So please don't be so quick to dismiss personal sin and unrepentance as a cause of your distress. Let me remind you of David's encounter with the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. So you know, David had committed three heinous sins. He had committed adultery, he had committed covetousness, and he had murdered Uriah. So the prophet comes and appears before David. I'm sure he's not excited about this assignment. And he starts with a story. This is in verses 1 through 4. There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of him morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So at first, David is indignant. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man has done this, deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing, because he had no pity. And David, uh, Nathan lowers the boom on David, remember? Nathan says to David, you are the man. And as he lists David's sins, Nathan says to the king, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now at this point, this could have gone a number of different ways, right? David could have responded in anger, how dare you? How dare you approach the king like that? David could have made excuses. I'm sorry, Nathan, you don't understand. You didn't see her on that roof. We call that blame shifting, right? It's her fault. Or David could have tried to lie, which would have been difficult He's pretty much caught red-handed, but I guess he could have tried. But God's mercy is great, and David responds in repentance. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. 
you shall not die. So back to Psalm 32. David says then, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David laid bare his sin before God. This is one of my favorite word studies. We don't do a lot of word studies in here. But the word for confess, 1 John 1, 9, right? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word confess in the Greek is a, is a compound word. It is homo legeo. Homo means same, and legeo means to speak. It's very helpful because we understand then that to confess our sin is to speak the same. We would say to agree, to agree with God. David, after Nathan confronted him, agreed with God about his sin. That is the essence of confession, brothers and sisters, that we would come to God and agree. We agree. God, I agree. I now see my sin like you see my sin. And I would ask you this morning, are you covering your sin before God today? And by that I mean, are you refusing to agree with him about the severity of your sin, or things you have done? Are you trying to rationalize? Are you trying to justify? Well, it's not really that bad because, no, that's, that's not confession. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I like to say, in that promise, and that's a precious promise, you do one thing. You confess, you agree with God, and then God takes care of the rest. He does the forgiving and he does the cleansing. And I haven't mentioned Jesus in this sermon yet. Obviously, David lived before the cross. So I think it's worth asking, what was David trusting in for forgiveness? And many people sometimes will say, well, in the Old Testament, you know, saints were saved by the law, and in the New Testament, saints are saved by grace. This is not true. Nobody has ever been saved by trusting in the law there was a sacrificial system, which was a picture. You brought the lamb to the temple. You brought it to the priest. There was a, a laying on of hands. The offerer would, would lay his hands on the head of the lamb, and the priest would, would carefully and, 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 and uh, very humanely slit the neck of the lamb. And, and, and as you leaned on the lamb, you felt the life going out of the lamb, and you fell forward as the lamb died, picturing the lamb dying in your place. But this was a picture, and godly Israelites knew this. This picture pointed to a covering that only God could provide. They knew that the sacrifice was inadequate. Why do they know it was inadequate? Because they had to do it again and again. David trusted in a sacrifice that was going to be provided. We trust in a sacrifice that has already been provided in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, and we saw this a few months ago in John, and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, earth, the world, godly Israelites should have been saying, so that's, that's what it meant. But is this really practical? I mean, let's be honest. We all like to keep our, our lives separated. We got the physical, we got the spiritual, spiritual things, getting saved, praying, reading my Bible, coming to church, and then the, the, the spiritual, I mean the physical things, the things that really matter, right? How my body feels, how I feel emotionally, the pressures I feel at school, at work, my distress, my desires. And if David had just written verses one and two, the, you know, blessed is the man whose 
transgressions are forgiven and sin is covered and iniquity is not held to his account, then we might could say, yeah, that's all kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff, David, but what about real life? What about my real life? And But David includes verses 3 through 5, the distress, I think, so that we can connect the two. Is it at least possible that our spiritual lives and our physical well-being and our emotional states are more connected than we allow? David thinks so. And so he makes an appeal. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. So here's David's assumption. He starts with a basic assumption, and this is key. He assumes he is speaking to people who desire to be godly. Okay, so at at this point, David is like, this is instruction for people who know that sin exists in their lives. Me. Me and who aspire to be that Psalm 1 kind of person who avoids wickedness and delights in God's Word. And by the way, I I think this is very important for us today. When David speaks of our sin being covered, he doesn't mean it in a way like our sin is covered so that we can continue to sin while God ignores it. Okay, we just got to be clear on that. Kids, especially, you got to understand this. Just because you can get away with sin doesn't mean you should do it, okay? In other words, it's not that we say... I can commit this sin because I can just know that it's going to be covered. Who hasn't, who hasn't thought that? I mean, you know, don't raise your hand. But who hasn't thought that, right? I can, I can do this sin and then I can, just, I can just come back and I'll ask forgiveness later. That's not the way this works. The godly person does sin, but they don't want to keep sinning. And so David says, pray to the Lord. So this is the instruction. Pray to the Lord at a time when he may be found. Seek the Lord. Oh, King David. You are being so simplistic. You know, my problems are so much bigger than prayer. Thank you. I will pray. But we live in a much more sophisticated age. And yet, what is it that has changed in David's situation? I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Brothers and sisters, please be honest with yourself. I've been having to be honest with myself all week because I've been dealing with this passage all week. Our heart pushes back against the simplicity of that. Is it true that we can find forgiveness by acknowledging our sin, by confessing our sin to the Father, by refusing to cover up our sin? It, it would seem so. And he says, do it while he may be found. Don't delay. Don't let that flame flicker out. In fact, don't assume you're godly if you refuse to draw near to God. There is mercy, but a time of judgment will come. And anyone who remains steadfastly, stubbornly refusing to repent will eventually face judgment. So we could say it like this. Will you agree with God about your sin while he may be found? And I I do think, I, I think, brothers and sisters, we can all admit, there are people we know who are miserable because they are living in unconfessed sin. I think some of them are believers who, like David, have wandered from the path. They, they have known, and, and I, would, I would carefully suggest that one of the most miserable people in the world is a believer who has known the presence of God, but who is persisting in unrepentant, unconfessed sin. And then I think there are others who have tasted the goodness of God, but have never truly confessed their sin and sought mercy. What is the result? Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for him. You preserve him from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I kept thinking of the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 
5. Do you remember this story? This is, this is flannel board material right here. This is old-time Sunday school. Naaman is a Syrian official. He's a commander in the army of the king of Syria. He has leprosy, and he has this little servant girl who is from Samaria. All right, she's Hebrew. Samaria is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. All right, so she has been captured. whole lot of stuff we could deal with there. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So the father, the, the prophet is Elisha. And it's a really great story. Second Kings 5. Go, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Mark it down. Go read it with your family later. Naaman shows up at Elisha's door and the king has a hissy fit. What do you mean? What do you mean a commander of Syria is coming into our nation and asking the prophet to heal him? So he shows up at the prophet's door, at Elisha's door, and he's got, he's got horses and chariots. You know, so you've got Elisha. He's just sitting around, you know, tending his, his, his plants. And all of a sudden, a Syrian commander shows up on horses and with chariots. Elisha sends out a messenger. Hey, go, uh, go tell him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought I would surely come, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Naaman's like, What is this? I mean, he could at least come outside. I thought there would be a big scene here, and he tells me to go wash in the Jordan. He stomps off. Verse 12 says he went away in a rage. I am an important man. I am a serious man. I have complicated problems. What do you mean sending me to go wash in the Jordan? Plus, Jordan's muddy. And by the way, I think this is how many professing Christians respond to the simplicity of God's word. I came here in terrible emotional distress, and you tell me to seek God? How dare you? And I, I've seen people basically storm away. I am a sophisticated pe person with sophisticated problems, and I need a sophisticated solution. And hear me, I'm not saying your problems aren't sophisticated. Certainly not saying they're not real. You may have very real, sophisticated problems, but the person who thinks their problems are too serious or too sophisticated or too complicated for God's solutions is maintaining that dichotomy that the spiritual is separate from the physical. Because you're thinking, my spiritual problems aren't the real problems, my physical problems are the real problem. But God, for some reason, is merciful to this Syrian commander, and he sends the commander's servants come to Naaman, and they say, my father, it is great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He actually said to you, wash and be clean. Respectfully, sir, we've come all this way. What if you just tried it? I mean, the Jordan River's right there. We won't tell anybody. And I know you're sitting there thinking, I know where you're going with this, and I've tried it, and it won't work. And I say to you, have you really? Have you really, with a wholehearted God, be merciful to me, I am a sinner and I agree with you. Have you tried it like that? And have you persisted? So I, I think it's key. Elisha tells Naaman, you got to go and you got to wash seven times. He had to go dip seven times. Keep at it. Did you go and approach God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Okay, that didn't work. I got to try something else. Or did you drink deeply from the well of living water? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What must his reaction have been? I mean, just think about Naaman. Oh, this is amazing. Who cares about the muddy Jordan water? I'm clean. The person who has experienced the cleansing of God, be it physical or spiritual, wants to openly extol God's goodness. 
When God's people experience God's transforming power, they want to share it. And that's what David does. Like, I'm instructing you. This is, this is what I think you should do. So up till this point, David has been speaking for himself. This is my experience. But then in verses 8 through 9, I call this the instruction. God himself seems, it's like God, you know, it's like David is writing the psalm, and God himself, you know, like comes in and is like, well, I got to say something right here. I, I need to speak. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God says, just, oh, David, shh, I want to help you. I want to help you. And there are three things I want to do. I want to instruct you, I want to teach you, and I want to counsel you or guide you. Your Father in heaven wants to help you walk this path. And to walk in his ways puts you under his protection. We don't say to God, I want to experience peace and safety, and I want to, uh, I want to be, know you, and then go out and live like we want to live. We don't say, cover me while I sin. No, we seek him, and he shows us how to think and to act, and then we enjoy his deliverance, and we experience what it means for him to be our hiding place. Look, speaking as a pastor, here's what I see. Christians who want the peace of forgiveness while they insist on living and thinking how they want to live. They want peace, and they want protection. They don't want the instruction and the teaching and the council, and they are refusing to go wash in the Jordan. He gives this little warning. Don't be like a dumb animal. These are God's words, not mine. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with a bit or a bridle, or it will not stay near you. If you stubbornly refuse this instruction, you are acting like a dumb animal. And, and Fluffy and Fido may seem like people to you, but they're not people. I know, I've got one of each. And if you're resting, resisting, rather, in resisting God's instruction and teaching and counsel, you're, you're behaving like a dumb dog, like a dumb animal, and you'll never know peace, security that comes from obeying. And so he closes with a final exhortation, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so in this final section, we see there are two ways, the wicked and the righteous, and the Bible does this all the time, and it makes us crazy. There's black and there's white. There's no middle way. Good trees that bear good fruit, bad trees that bear bad fruit, a narrow way, a broad way, houses on the rock, houses on the sand, springs that bring forth fresh water, springs that bring forth salt water. On the one hand, the wicked can expect many sorrows. Sin will bring suffering. It may not be apparent right now. This is the great discussion of the scriptures, but God's mercy will run out, and ultimately there will be the judgment of God. On the other hand, God's steadfast love surrounds those who trust the Lord. And steadfast love is just another word for mercy or loving kindness. David exchanged the sorrow of wickedness for the joy of forgiveness. And you can too. So, how is it that poor people, sick people, bereaved people can consider themselves blessed? And here's the truth. I know rich people who are miserable, and I know poor people who are joyful. I've known healthy people who are scared to death, and I've known sick people who are at perfect peace. I've known people surrounded by family and friends who are lonely and depressed, and I've known people who are afflicted with all kinds of losses who seem content. And there are those people, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting one, I've met a few, who it feels like in the midst of their distress, when you go to comfort them, they're trying as hard as they can to comfort you. It's so weird. You ever met a person like that? 
Hey, brother, I'm so sorry for your loss. Well, let me encourage you. Let me, out of the comfort that I am receiving, comfort you. And it's like, whoa, that's weird. You are so blessed. How do you explain this? A starting place is forgiveness of sins. And, and you know, David is living in the real world just like we live in the real world. He is not a man walking around with his head bowed and his hands folded. He knew what it was to sin, to be betrayed, to endure affliction, and to be physically exhausted. We saw all of that last year in 1 Samuel. And this psalm, it reads like real life. Do you notice that? Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. When I kept silent, my body wasted away. When I confessed my sin to you, you forgave my iniquity. Listen to the instruction of the Lord. If you don't, you're acting like a wild animal. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the righteous are glad in the Lord. And I see this. These are the normal ups and downs of the normal Christian life, groaning in sin and experiencing the joy of forgiveness. And I hope this much is clear to you this morning. True happiness is found in relationship with God. It is being instructed and guided by Him. And that relationship begins with forgiveness. You guys, there is a sense in which once we know we are forgiven, our step should have a spring in it. Our, our, our eyes should have a twinkle. E even if there are tears, that there's that spark of joy that tells people something's different here. Think of all the songs. At the cross, at the cross, where the burden of my heart rolled away. Has the burden of your heart been rolled away? Have you experienced forgiveness? My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Have your chains fallen off? We sang last week in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Once you know those things, there's joy there. And that's why we sing. And that's why we tell other people about what God has done for us. And this is the starting point for everything we have, Christ. So we're going to turn uh, to the Lord's table, as we do every Sunday. And uh, with this understanding of forgiveness in mind, I'd invite the, the guys to come up and to distribute the bread and the cup. In a sense, we celebrate that forgiveness, the broken body of Christ, the, the blood that is shed for us. We celebrate that every time we participate in this little supper, and we look forward to a feast one day when we will all think about that, when we'll all eat together with Christ in full awareness and enjoyment of all that he for us. So if you're here with us this morning, if you're not normally here with us, you are welcome. If you know that forgiveness, you are welcome to partake with us as we eat and drink. Uh, if not, find one of the guys with the green tags and ask them about that, and we would love to share that with you. So guys are going to hand out the, the, the bread and the cup right now. Hold on to it, and I'll come back up in just a second.